Hey, I'm Tim Elmore, the author of The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership. Get ready for my quest for the best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dr. Tim Elmore. Tim Elmore is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop emerging leaders. His work grew out of 20 years serving alongside Dr. John C. Maxwell. He's appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, Psychology Today, as well as on many television interviews. Tim Elmore has written over 35 books, including Habitudes, Images That Form Leadership Habits and Attitudes. Tim's Near Atlanta is here to talk about his book, The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, Embracing the Conflicting Demands of Today's Workplace. Welcome, Tim. So good to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Tim, who's somebody who Ah, influenced or inspired you? Well, I tell you what, the first person that comes to mind is a gentleman by the name of Sean Mitchell. I'll tell you why. When I was in high school, junior year, Sean started an outreach in San Diego, California, and he asked me to give him a hand. Of course, remember, I'm a student, so I don't know what I'm doing, but I helped set up the chairs and held his coat and gave him some water. But what we would do every Friday night was we'd show a great movie that kids would like, but it always had a principle inside of it in the storyline. Then Sean would hop up afterwards and he'd speak. He was a dynamic communicator. It was just a great outreach every Friday night. Bill, about eight weeks in, Sean comes backstage and he says to me in a raspy voice, Tim, I don't think I'm going to be able to speak tonight. I don't know what's going on, but somebody else is going to have to speak. Of course, I'm scared to death now because I've got his water and I'm holding his coat. But I said, what do you think we should do? He said, I think you should speak tonight. To make a long story short, Sean forced me onto the stage for the first time. I'm speaking in front of hundreds of my peers. I'm scared to death. You remember the first time you spoke publicly, you're just hoping to survive the ordeal. When I got done, Sean gave me a big old bear hug and he said, Tim, that was great. From now on, I'll be on one week. You'll be on the next. Thanks to Sean Mitchell, I've been speaking on a regular basis ever since I was 17 years old. Now, the fun part of the story is... A few years ago, Sean and I met together for dinner and we were just reminiscing about the old days. My first night up to speak came up in the conversation and I noticed Sean got very uncomfortable at the dinner we were having. In fact, he was staring at the floor and I said, Sean, what's wrong? He looked up with a grin on his face. He said, Tim, I have a confession to make. I really didn't have laryngitis that night. I said, what? He goes, it was the only way I knew I could get up to speak is to fake like I couldn't speak. Of course, I wanted to slap him right then and there in the restaurant, but I didn't. Instead, I thought, oh my gosh, how cool that his goal that night, way back when, was not to get the best speaker in the room up on the stage. If that was his goal, he would have gone up on the stage. His goal was in this young leader that he saw several years his junior. He thought, I'm going to put this guy up and give him a shot. I'm so glad he did. I was filled with mentors like that. I always tell people, if I don't do a good job, it's my own fault because I've had great mentors in my life. Well, Tim, a couple of questions from there. First of all, he was just a couple of years older than I, he was at college, but you were still in high school. Yeah. And he said, I want you to lead the discussion. Oh, what was gosh. the movie? No, I was so consumed with studying the notes. My prayer was not, Lord, change somebody's life. My prayer was, Lord, <laughs> help me to survive the night. When you look back on that, 
What do you think are one or two things that you took away from that experience and how you handled it? I thought to myself how easy it is for a gifted person uh, to be thrown onto the stage to sing or dance or act or speak. I'm not saying I was terribly gifted, but Sean must have seen something in me. That's the negative side. It's easy to get thrown up because you have a talent, even when your character perhaps is not ready to be in the public eye. How many times have we seen people just derail their careers morally or financially because they had a gift that thrust them into the limelight when they really weren't ready in terms of their own integrity? That was the negative side. On the positive side, I learned how fun it is to be able to open my mouth and share some words and say, see lives change because the epiphany happened inside of them. The light bulb went off. And of course, you hear them afterwards. You've had this happen and you just go, oh, this is so cool to be able to help somebody think better and to act better. What was the first time you can think of in your own work experience and you were overseeing somebody and you thought to yourself, maybe it's time to give them a little push in their responsibilities. It might not have been a, a literal stage, but maybe just a little push in visibility. I was overseeing a team very early on and I remember thinking the very thought, how cool was it that Sean let me go up when I probably could have fallen on my face that night? I remember Ralph and Keith and later Steve and others that I was working with that I thought to myself, I want to give them the same break that I got thanks to somebody like Sean or John Maxwell for that matter. John put me in charge of things when I was like out of college and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I don't think I would have trusted me right out of college. But he did and I'm grateful he did. Let's take a step back because even though many people listening know who John Maxwell is, yeah. one of the most prolific writers of our time on leadership yeah. and one of the most prolific speakers at just sharing and getting his ideas out into the world. What else should people know about John Maxwell from your point of view? How <laughs> did you get hired by John? I tell you what, here's a lesson that I learned from John. Probably the most important lesson I ever learned from John Maxwell was how to host a difficult conversation. That confrontation, that crucial conversation that we all talk about these days. I remember at 23 years old, my very first job evaluation. I sat down in John's office. I was a little scared because I was a early 20 something. John was about to give me my performance review. He rattled off seven things that I was doing well. Of course, I want to write them down. This is awesome. I'm taking notes. But after he got done with the seven things he said I was doing well, he said, now, Tim, and he paused. There's a couple of two or three things you're going to want to work on. I think I said, beg your pardon, because I had never had anybody question my abilities before. I believe my mother. I was awesome. Yeah. That's right. It was a like, meeting. See you later, John. Catch at lunchtime. <laughs> well, talk to me about areas that I really did need to grow in. By the way, one of his areas was, he said, Tim, you need to develop off the platform charisma. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, when you're on the stage, you just boom, you're just on. The stories you tell, it's so engaging. But he said, when you walk off the platform, it's you turn the button off and you just walk away. But the people are still there. They want to meet you. They want to shake your hand. I said, how do I do that? And in a way that only John Maxwell could, he said, just watch me this week. I watched him. And if you know anything about John, he is on when he's on the stage. But when he walks off for the other 23 and a half hours of the day, hugging people and shaking hands and asking about their dog and their cousin, I'm thinking this is 
is real leadership, not just when the spotlight's on, but when it's off and it's just everyday people and everyday conversations. I think I have learned that. I'm still growing, but John taught me that even as a kid right out of college. It was not just leadership as a job or an event, but leadership as an identity. As, well, if I'm a leader, I'm a leader all the time. I like to say it this way. Leadership has less to do with a position and more to do with a disposition. It's a way of looking at life and it is your identity. Forget the badge, forget the title. It's who you are. Now, there's times when leaders listen and follow. We're all leading and following simultaneously all the time. But boy, did but did John change my sense of identity in that. And I realized I'm always on with my wife, with my children, on the stage, off the stage. That was an incredible lesson. Now, leadership is a complex arena. It's not always easy. Ask people, anyone who's led a team to accomplish any significant task from launching a book to launching an app on a software platform. It's not always hard. Ask anyone who's led a team for the second time or someone who's you know, a team that's well-experienced and well-trained to take on a specific task. What is it that makes leadership so important yet so hard to pin down because it's yeah, complex? It's not the same question. thing all the time. Um, we teach leadership with images, habitudes or images that form leadership habits and attitudes. One of our images is called three buckets, three buckets. What we basically teach in this image is, and by the way, it's a photograph of three buckets sitting on a shelf. It's quite simple. But here's what we say. Everything that happens to you in your life fits into one of three buckets. Number one, it is in your control. Number two, it's out of your control. Or number three, it's within your influence. In your control, out of your control, within your influence. Your response to each three, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, really determines your level of fulfillment and satisfaction. For instance, have we not all seen people trying to control something that's out of their control? It's, it makes you miserable. You can't control the weather. If you're an athlete, you can't control the referees or the opposition, right? If it's in your control, obviously you need to take responsibility. You need to own that. Stop blaming anybody else and own it. If it's out of your control, you need to trust the process you're in. Trust is going to be huge. You can't do a thing about it. Don't lose any sleep. Trust the process. The third one is where leadership comes in, Bill. It's within your influence. This is behavioral science. If I'm on a team, I can influence the attitudes of my teammates, but I can't control the attitudes of my teammates. Any parent of a teenager would tell you that's within your influence, but it's not in your control. Let's take it to a management position because managers will often make that mistake in trying to take something out of the influence bucket and put it into the control bucket because it's, I want my teammate, Tina, to be more enthusiastic when she talks about her reports and brings that energy. It's a good intention, but the way that a manager might go about doing it could be awkward and counterproductive. How would you encourage someone to think about that if you were telling a story from the stage, say? First of all, Tina, the proverbial person you're talking about really needs to realize it is in bucket three. In bucket three, you do take some action, but you can't control the outcome. There's difference between input and outcome. Input is what you can control. Patrick, the boss, the leader, will need to sit down with Tina and say, can I give you some insights or tips on how you can bring more energy to the room? Because we do need more energy. I I think part of the thing as a supervisor might be, Tina, I I need you to do this in the next six months, or we're going to have to evaluate whether you're 
you're a fit here. There's nothing wrong with that. If one of our core values is passion and she's not passionate, she may not be a fit. Inputs rather than outcomes. Now, we all want to measure both, but when I'm a leader, I have to really say, I can pay attention to the input I'm giving Tina, but I'm going to have to trust her to step up and respond. It's like a dance. Every dance, a couple, a male and a female, let's say, are dancing. The dance needs a leader. Someone's taking the first step, but the dance doesn't go on unless the other person takes a step. I think that's how leadership really looks. Now let's reverse it. Let's say that Tina is saying to Patrick, who's her supervisor, and she wants to feel less pressure, and then she'll feel more supported to be more present, visible, and vocal within meetings. How would Tina approach yeah, her boss, question. Patrick? When I had been in this situation, it was years ago, but when I was, I remember deciding I need to meet with my supervisor and I need to add value. I remember taking a boss, we'll call him Bob. I'll take Bob to a, a breakfast. I'll treat and I'll just express my gratitude for the role that he's allowed me to play for the influence I now have. But then I'll say, is there anything I can do for you? I want Bob to feel like I'm on his side. I am for him. I am loyal. I want to add value because I'm now earning my right to say, can I tell you what would really help me? If you are more encouraging or if you're more supportive, I'm going to feel more included and be able to really perform in the way that you want me to perform. It's still Bob's goal we're getting to, but I'm helping him help me to help him, if that makes sense. That's right. It really helps illustrate that you can't just expect people to support you if you don't tell them how. You do teach people that you need to have balance to the confidence with humility so that you show conviction as well as empathy. Visibility with invisibility. When to step back and when to and to be teachers and to stay open to learning and so on. Can you remember someone you worked with or maybe who asked a question after one of your talks who really only understood or favored one side of the paradox oh, wow. that was yes, familiar absolutely. to him or her? I remember watching Terry, who was a leader of a company, and he was only confident and not humble, or at least he was communicating confidence without humility. That's the paradox that I talk about in the book. I think leaders need to be both confident and humble. People only saw confidence in him all the time. In fact, they felt like it was overconfidence. It was cockiness or arrogance because that's all they saw. Pretty soon they're starting to think, what are you drinking? What are you smoking? You know, that you're not that good. You're just not that good. Had he shown another side to his confidence, which was humility, where I realized I need others to help me reach this goal. I don't know every answer myself. Oh my gosh, that becomes inclusive. Everybody begins to love being on the journey together. I think it's very easy when you listed those paradoxes. The eight paradoxes are very easy to have one or the other. We just don't live in an either or world anymore. It's a lot of gray and it's a lot of this at 10 a.m., but that at 3 p.m. that we're going to have to practice. Yeah, it's not saying one is better or worse than the other, even though many of us think that one is the right answer. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's so true. Yeah. In fact, I would say this. A lot of times what leaders need to do is read the need before they lead. So read the situation. And, and let, let me just give you a scenario. We talk about confidence and humility as a paradox. You might read a, a new person on your team and realize, oh my gosh, they need a confident leader. They need to see on week one, a very confident leader. That's what they need. But I might meet with seasoned veterans at 3 p.m. and they need to see humility in me because they've been around long enough to know I don't have all the answers. So on the same day, but at different times, depending on the audience, I got to read the need and then lead. Your discussion reminds me of Tim Urban, who writes the blog, Wait But Why blog. And he describes arrogance as ignorance plus conviction. <laughs> why is that such a dangerous combination? <laughs> 
emotion. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because we're feeling very strongly about something we don't know much about. That's what it is. I tell you what, here's something interesting. I talk a little bit in a new book I'm writing right now about the Dunning-Kruger effect. It was by two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger. They basically say, when you learn something new, you tend to get excited about it and tend to assume more about that new subject than you really do because it's all new. You start talking as if you know it all. In reality, when you first learn something, you really know the least that you'll ever know because you're probably going to accumulate more knowledge as you go older and, and research it. That's what I think happens. You have ignorance and conviction together. Oh my gosh, how dangerous is that to feel like I know what I'm doing? Often some doing. wisest leaders that I've ever met have always been well aware that there's so much to learn. There's so much that they don't know. Now, you and I, you've had direct experience meeting someone who I'm going to ask you about next. That's when you moved to Atlanta, you met the founder of Chick-fil-A. Earlier in the season, we had Steve Robinson on, who was the first CMO of Chick-fil-A on episode 382. He talked about struggling to understand Truett Cathy's leadership at times. It was hard. It was frustrating. But he said that Truett was fair, open-minded, and supportive, even when disagreed. What was one of the examples of leadership that you learn from Truett. I think one of the best lessons I ever learned from him was that he was for his people. Even when he had to draw the line and let somebody go, he was still for them. In fact, from time to time, he would help them find another job if he had to let them go. In the book, Bill, you remember I talk about Charlie. Charlie was at the Dwarf House, basically Truett Cathy's very first restaurant in Atlanta, Georgia. Started in 1946, I think. Charlie was the night manager. And so he closed down the restaurant every night, worked for several hours, and oftentimes shut it down alone. Truett Cathy would come in during the daytime and he would hear noises up on the roof. And he thought, I wonder what those noises are. What would be up on the roof? He asked Dan Cathy, his son at the time that was a teenager, to grab a ladder and climb up on the roof and see what was going on up there. Dan climbs up this ladder, gets to the top. What does he see but a whole bunch of beer cans? Charlie was an alcoholic and he would chug down a six pack or two six packs of beer, throw the cans up on the roof, thinking nobody will ever know. There were dozens and dozens of cans up there. Dan Cathy told me as I was climbing down the ladder, I thought to myself, there goes Charlie. He's going to be out of here. You can have a drunk person on the shift, but I love the way Truett Cathy responded. As soon as he knew what had happened, he walked into Charlie, took him aside and said, Charlie, let's go to AA together. The two of them went to Alcoholics Anonymous and Charlie got sober and he finished his career at that restaurant under Truett Cathy. To me, that's a man of conviction. We're not going to just let this go. I'm so for my people. I will err on the side of generosity. I will work my butt off to make sure they have everything they need to succeed. That's the kind of guy I think I met. True Kathy was full of conviction because he was for supporting his people, but he was also for the standard that could not continue. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. There have been times when we think of Chick-fil-A, Bill, this, the first thing we often think about is not just great chicken, but closed on Sunday. That's what they're famous for. The number one sales day of the week for many fast food restaurants, they're closed. There was one I remember hearing from an executive at Chick-fil-A. He drove up to a Chick-fil-A restaurant that he heard through the grapevine had opened up on Sunday and he fired the operator. He fired him. Yeah, I'm sure he did it nicely, but there was a firm conviction. This is not our value. I love the fact that he was, well, here's the paradox. He was stubborn and open-minded and that was the stubborn part coming out. One of the stories you wrote about, which was new to me that I really enjoyed, was one where the executives were sitting around in a retreat or a conference discussing competition and they were discussing how Boston market suddenly started to gain on them. All of the executives were looking for the answer and they expected the boss to say, 
we've got to make sure that we're going after market share, or we've got to make sure we push harder on advertising. Truett Cathy didn't. He was stepping back and letting them wrestle with it. Then when they finally pushed Truett for a response, what did he say? That's exactly right. In fact, the exact words were, I'm tired of talking about getting bigger. I want to talk about getting better because if we're better, our customers will make sure we get bigger. That's Mark Twain wisdom right there. He wasn't perfect, obviously, but when I talk to people that worked with him day in and day out, there's just such a respect they had for this man of convictions, very stubborn about the core of his business, but very open-minded to adapt and keep growing all along the way. I had such a great conversation with Steve Robinson just about shoestring fries. <laughs> and, and them proposing any other kind of fry. And he was like, nope, that's not what we need here. Yeah, but he was yeah. open to it, like you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of people are thinking, gosh, Tim doesn't have to deal with people who he manages because they all come to him understanding these things implicitly. And that's not true. <laughs> Nobody gets to hire someone who comes fully ready from junior intern to senior executive. Share an example of how you recognize within your own company, people who are on your payroll when and there was a time when they were not leading by embracing the paradoxes, but heading in a way that favored one side over another, and it wasn't going to be helpful to the situation, and you needed to do something to help improve the result. I'm going to tell a story on me. I failed at one of these paradoxes just a couple of years ago. I remember, in fact, I had just begun to write the book, but I founded Growing Leaders in 2003. I am now passing off responsibilities and leadership roles to a great team of leaders. But I distinctly remember as those leaders started making decisions that I would not make, I stepped in and I said, oh, that's not who we are. That's not who we are. On some occasions, it's true. They had not embraced our core identity and they needed to be given some input. Reinforcement. That's right. Yes, we'll call it reinforcement. That's right. Not history lessons. I tell you what. I came to a realization that I needed to let it go. I needed to step out and be invisible. That's one of the visibility and invisibility. I needed to be invisible in those moments and let them step up. They would never have stepped up if I had been in the room and continued to nudge them on my ideals. They would always acquiesce to what I wanted. So I'm telling you, I failed to practice that paradox. What's interesting is that many don't understand that even if you're in the room, they're reading your body language. If someone proposes something and you hold your breath or your eyelid, eyebrows go up, that's a definite vote. <laughs> That's so true. Say no words. I've got your paraverbal communication. If you don't mind, I want to double click on this. My case study for that chapter on great leaders are both visible and invisible is Dr. Martin Luther King. If you look at his life from the mid 50s all the way to the early to mid 60s, he was a very visible civil rights leader. He marched he protested, he let, you know, let, let boycotts and sit-ins and so forth and so on. In fact, he got himself thrown into prison on purpose just to model, are you willing to make the sacrifice for this? By 1963, when he made that great speech, I have a dream. From that point on, he, we really see him begin to step back. There were many times in 64 and 65, 66, 67, the last five years of his life, where a young John Lewis would call him and say, why aren't you in the meeting? We're about ready to start. Martin would say, John, you know what to do. You know what to say. Because Martin Luther King Jr. knew if I'm there, they won't say a word. They'll let me do the talking. I love the wisdom that said, 
It's not about me. It's about a cause much bigger than me. And my job is to shut up right now and let these young leaders step up. Tell me how you solved it when you've looked at working with one of the people you've hired. Share a specific example so we can learn from that, please. Bill, I'll tell you, in our organization, I remember when I was the person that created all the content. We're a content organization, essentially. I began to realize, I don't know if I can travel, speak, write a new book and create the slide decks and and everything else that's got to go. Andrew McPeak joined our team. This would have been maybe seven years ago. And I began to realize I am better off and we are better off is if he is doing more. And so slowly but surely, I began to pass on tasks that I really thought truly, I probably need to do that in order for it to be good. That sounds terribly cocky and arrogant, but I began to see, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. These are the inner thoughts that every manager or person in positions of responsibility have as they tentatively let go and wonder whether they're going to have to take it back an hour before the presentations do. Yeah, that's right. I created a new habitude for this. It's called clean windows. Now, clean windows can mean one of two things. It can be a sentence and clean as a verb or clean windows can be an adjective. I can either say, Bill, I want you to clean the windows. I tell you exactly how I want it done. Or I can say, Bill, that window's dirty. I want a clean window in an hour. I'll let you do it however you want to do it. But the bottom line is, I want a clean window. I turn you loose to, to practice creativity. You know what I'm saying. Now, you may find a way better way than I would have given you in my six steps of cleaning windows. I'm now into clean windows is an adjective and an object, not clean windows is a verb and an action. That's what I've got to shoot for. Outcomes over inputs in that sense. Yeah. I love the discussion that you led in the first couple of pages of the book about how Isaac Newton was forced to leave Cambridge during the Great Plague of 1665 and how he used that as an opportunity. To some degree, it was conscious. To some degree, it was just unconscious and he was driven by his curiosity and his intellectual ambition, but it it led from that break to a breakthrough in the study of mathematics. Can you share more about how you think about that in a business sense? Yeah, I've applied that story to businesses quite often recently. Just so listeners know, Isaac Newton was a college student during the Great Plague of London. He got sent home with all the rest of the student body and their own social distancing. But while he was at home, he thought to himself, maybe this is a good thing that I have no one telling me what to study or how to study it. Maybe I've got an opportunity here. And sure enough, it was during his time at home when he should have been in class that he created calculus. He created the laws of optics and he created the laws of motion and he discovered the law of gravity. That apple fell from the apple tree that we've all heard about. Isaac Newton, if he were a business person today and were to talk to us, he would say this. I saw the interruption as an introduction to a whole new way of getting something done. That's what I think the pandemic forced us to do. We were all frustrated at first, I think, but soon I began to say, wait a minute, I've got time to write a new book or I've got time to create this product or this service. I've got time to learn Zoom. Many people learned to use technology like they presently do during 2020. I think that's what we got to do. We got to shift our mindset to see interruptions as introductions. Maybe this is the very nudge I need to do that new thing that those 22-year-olds have been wanting me to do for five years now. Isaac Newton is not here to ask, but I am delighted to ask you, 
Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round, Tim? I hope so. We're about to find out. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you who influenced or inspired you, and you talked about Sean, who gave you that opportunity and that nudge to be on stage. When you were a teenager, Tim, what's a song that you loved? Gosh, I think I loved, I forget the song's title, but it was Ain't Nothing Gonna Break My Stride, Ain't Nothing Gonna Move Me Now. I'm trying to remember the audit. That was a great song. It was an up-tempo song, and that was my life. I want to move forward. I want to take a step forward. So that was me. That's by Matthew Wilder. Is that right? There you go. I think you're right. What would you say is the most effective way that you get the word out about your mission to help people become better leaders at all levels each week? What do you do specifically? Something that we could learn from. I speak about a hundred times a year. I'll be out on the road somewhere at a company or a university or a nonprofit or a healthcare institute. I'll be speaking on the eight paradoxes of great leadership. I talk a lot about generational diversity in the workplace. We have five generations working together right now because people are staying on their jobs longer. That's usually the way we get the word out and that we have subscriptions and books and things like that, that we try to help people in the process of becoming a better leader. What would you say is your superpower if you had to pick one as a leader of your own business? I think it's communication. That might sound arrogant here because I I'm communicating here for about an hour. But I think my superpower is when I look at faces and I see what they need and I'm able to flap my gums a little bit and share an idea or a thought or a story, they light up. And I feel like that is what makes me tick. I love communication. I try to give people a point for their head, a picture for their heart and a practice for their hands. That's what I think people need to change their life. As a business leader, what's an area that you're working on or find as a challenge still? We are still repurposing uh, a lot of our events to be digital or virtual. We've done that now for a few years, but we're trying to get better and better. Then I have a new book coming out this fall called A New Kind of Diversity. I'm working on gathering the final bits of data and statements of endorsement. But Bill, like I said earlier, that's about the idea that we all know there's ethnic diversity in the workplace. We know there's gender diversity. We know there's income diversity. But I think this new kind of diversity that we need to address is there are generations that just value different things, communicate in different ways, and have different strengths to offer a team if we let them. We need to build bridges instead of walls between the 20-something and the 50-something at the workplace. I can't wait to get back with you and talk more about that in detail because that's really needed. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? That's a great question. My wife would say it was a new suit of clothes. She's always going, do you look nice when you're out there? And I'm into function over form. I wish I cared more about fashion, but my wife would say a new suit of clothes. I think for me, it probably was some smart technology that I got that's going to help me gather data better. I try to make my books pracademic. That's two words that are that I made up. I want them to be very research-based, academic, but yet very practical in nature. Here's three steps you can take based on this data. I've got a research team and I'm always trying to seek out subscriptions and technology that helps me research. What is your definition of effective leadership? Or what is a a way that you observe leadership that is effective? You said at the very beginning of this program that we're really developing emerging leaders, people from the emerging generation. When we try to boil it down in their minds, what we're really talking about, because many young people say, oh, I don't know if I like leadership because all they think about is power trips and just stuff that just turns them off. We believe that leaders ultimately solve problems and serve people, solve problems and serve people. Now, clearly it's 
it's more than that. But fundamentally, if I am solving problems and serving people, that's the two fastest ways to gain influence in someone's life. Serve them and solve a problem. They'll follow you. That's what we're trying to build out of, gosh, about 35 million young adults. And you don't need a title in order to do those two things. That's exactly right. I love that. Tim, what would you say is the most important habit routine or belief that you've eliminated in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I'll tell you what, I think it was looking at my email as the first task in the morning. The reason I say that, many others have learned that before I did, but I I say that because when I look at email as the first task in the morning, I'm not the mercy of all the requests that have come in from someone else that may not be my priority. It's their priority. If I now can wait and position that later and tend to my highest priorities of that day. Now I'm responding later when I don't need my best brain at 3 p.m. or whatever. So I think that that was the habit that I eliminated that I'm now still saying thank you. There's an issue I want to tackle before we we wrap up today's interview. That is the idea of averages and that you don't want to say that one of these sides of the paradoxes are better or worse than the others. And one of the most inherently dangerous mistakes or the takeaways that people would sometimes think is that instead of high standards or forgiveness, they should strive just for somewhere in between. Average isn't even in the same zip code as excellence. And average doesn't push us to express our full talent. Average is alarming in terms of the statistically average American, their financial situation, their health, and entertainment consumption. All of that is just nothing we want our best friends to aspire for, never mind ourselves or our closest colleagues. So from your research and experience, Tim, what is the danger of striving for average And what should we aim for at work instead of average? My belief, Bill, is that almost every human being needs a leader to call them up, to challenge them upward, coach them up to a higher level of of excellence. Here's why. It's not that people can't be excellent on their own. I think people are just tired. I think we just go into most days a bit exhausted. Maybe we didn't sleep well the night before. Maybe we didn't eat the day before. But for some reason, we make our way through a typical day exhausted. Because we are, average seems, okay, I'll make it. I'll survive. We're the average, which is the best of the worst and the worst of the best, basically. In the book, I I do. The average American is 17 pounds overweight and this much in debt and spends all this time just watching TV. I feel like leadership is needed. And it begins with self-leadership. I need to do this for me. I need to challenge myself to go a step above what perhaps the organization is targeting. I'll give you a good example. I love sports. I remember when Michael Jordan was playing basketball for the Chicago Bulls, when practice was over and the entire team is walking into the shower to end their day. Michael Jordan spends another 30 minutes out on the court shooting free throws. Probably the one guy that didn't need to shoot more free throws is shoot more free throws. He had a standard. And I think this whole high standards but gracious forgiveness is where leaders need to camp out. I will forgive you if you're attempting to meet the standard. I'm not real good with forgiveness if you're not even trying at all. But I think both are necessary to get the very most of our people. They need that safety net of forgiveness, but they need a standard that only leaders can set most of the time. Well put, Tim. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best, where we talked about your first exposure to being nudged out by Sean to go out on the stage and host that discussion. We talked about the importance of having three buckets, what is within your control, what is outside your control, and what is within your influence in order to think about change. We talked about the example of Terry, who was overconfident and needed to embrace some humility in order to work more effectively and to be heard by his team. And the idea that you need to read the need before you lead. So important for people to do, so important for all of our guests in order to 
learn from. We learned how Truett Cathy was such a strong leader and yet was open-minded to the, the wisdom of his people. For these and for so many more reasons, I want to thank you for joining me today, Tim on my quest for the best. It was my pleasure, Bill. Tim, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that people could learn more about you and your work online? Our organization is called Growing Leaders. They can just go to growingleaders.com and find the Habitudes and the Eight Paradoxes book and so forth. You also have a personal website where people could get more involved in the events that you lead. It's timelmore.com and that's where they can book speaking events and check out those resources there. Thanks for asking. Tim, we're going to link to those two websites, timelmore.com and growingleaders.com, as as well as your social media, as well as places to buy your many books. Tim Elmore, author of The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, Embracing the Conflicting Demands of Today's Workplace. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.